Stepping from being a director to being a chair is very different in the sense that, you know, the analogy that was given to me and which I, I have found to be most accurate is that you're the conductor of an orchestra as a chair and, you know, what you're really trying to do is to seek to leverage the strengths of your board. Um, you're seeking to make sure that you hear from everybody, you know, you have uh, an equal contribution from, from directors and that no particular directors are really carrying much more of the load than others. And, uh, you know, and I think you're also trying to make sure that the collective is in harmony. Renata Bernardi, and this is the Job Hunting Podcast, where I interview experts and professionals and discuss issues that are important for job hunters and those who are working to advance their careers. So make sure that you subscribe and follow, and let's dive right in. In the last episode, number 104, I started our conversation with Moana Weir, the chair of the Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission in Victoria, discussing her experience building her portfolio of non-executive directorships. In this second part, we will be discussing her role as chair of the commission, and I think it will be a great conversation for two types of listeners, the ones that want to understand that evolution from being a director to being in chair and what that means and the different responsibilities and how uh, Moana conveys the work of the commission through her public speaking, including in this podcast. So I think it's good to observe how a chair operates and, and the importance and responsibilities of that role. But it will also be interesting for the listeners that are interested in equal opportunity, diversity and inclusion, human rights in the workplace. We will be discussing a lot of the issues related to the work of that commission and um, expanding to what's happening not just in Victoria, but all over the world. And looking at issues such as, you know, what, what's really important for the workplace environment now in light of the pandemic and quarantining, lockdowns, working from home and all the issues we didn't see coming, frankly, as if we didn't have enough issues to work on to improve human rights and equal opportunity, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. We now have a few more things on our plate and we do discuss some of those issues as well. So if you're interested in starting your board appointments, understanding what that entails, understanding what um, you need to do to become a board member, I suggest that you start from part one, which is episode 104, and then continue to this episode 104. Five, and if you're interested in equal opportunity and human rights in the workplace, this is the episode for you. So stay tuned and listen up. Now, before we go um, and listen to my conversation with Moana, which I'm sure you will enjoy, I just wanted to remind you to subscribe and follow this podcast. If you have been listening for a while and you're enjoying it, you will make me so, so happy if you give it a good review, rank it five stars, whatever platform you're listening to it. So 
That would be a dream come true for me. And remember to subscribe to my newsletter. There's a link on my episode show notes. So if you click on the episode show notes, you will find a link to sign up to the newsletter, a link to download the optimized job search schedule. And by subscribing to the newsletter, it means that I'm in touch with you. You can reply back and, you know, ask me questions or find out more about my services. But it also means you get the new episodes of the Job Hunting Podcast every week in your inbox. Uh, plus a few other things that I send specially to my mailing list. So I hope you join us. And without further ado, here's the second part of my conversation with Moana. Mm. Now, Moana, now you're a chair. Yes. What's the difference between being an, an executive director and the chair? Yeah, there's quite a big big difference from that. Um, yes, and I think it's really interesting because when you're a director of a board, you know, it's very collegiate, um, it's very collaborative, um, you're part of a collective, uh, and it's that dynamic is very different to your executive career and your executive dynamic uh, on an executive team, although, of course, um, you know, you come from collaborative, hopefully, um, very collaborative dynamic uh, on the executive side as well. It's just a very different, it's a very different dynamic because the decisions of the board are collective decisions. And actually, even if you disagreed with a particular decision, ultimately, that will end up being the decision of the board. And then it's your, you know, that is your position as well. Um, so stepping from being a director to being a chair is very different in the sense that, you know, the analogy that was given to me and which I, I have found to be most accurate is that you're the conductor of an orchestra um, mm. as a chair. And, you know, what you're really trying to do is to seek to leverage the strengths of your board. Um, you're seeking to make sure that you hear from everybody. You know, you have uh, an equal contribution from, from directors and that no particular directors are really carrying much more of the load than others. And, uh, you know, and I think you're also trying to make sure that the collective is in harmony uh, to, to the degree, you know, that that's sort of practicable. Because, of course, you also want to have the voices in the boardroom which are challenging and the voices in the boardroom which um, sort of make you think about different perspectives. So, you know, so it is that sort of balancing act. I Something that I have found which was interesting and maybe interesting for your listeners is, you know, the, the chair role is not the same as being a CEO in terms of that sort of explicit positional power. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a role that you really need to step into the authority of that, that role much more intentionally in my experience than, than when you're, you know, the CEO and it, there's, there's kind of an explicit understanding of the sort of positional authority of that role. You know, when you're the chair and you've you've been a director, and so you've all you've been involved in that sort of collaborative collective. When you you become the chair, it's actually it's a moment where the, you need to adjust to your new role and sort of step much more intentionally into that into that position. And uh, is there a lot of forward thinking about the composition of future board members and succession planning for you? Are you all, are you also thinking about forecasting and sort of risk managing those situations? Uh, yes. So we have a board skills matrix as, you know, many if not uh, most boards have now. And yeah. so that's that's a very good way to think about, you know, the skills that are needed. And we're also very explicit. I mean, I'm chair of the Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. So as you'd expect, we're very explicit about the personal attributes and trying to ensure that we reflect the diversity in the community 
in you know sort of diversity on on the board as well so um so are there there are those requirements and issues we think about as well and with all of that experience i'm very fascinated with the decision making at the board member and the agenda that's sort of the culture it's almost like the the way that the organization sets up an agenda for board meetings reflects the culture of that organization in a way yeah yeah it's interesting yeah. um uh, it's what, what is the best agenda for you you know how do you like as a chair now what do you think is your um the agenda that works best for your style of leadership yeah so um so it's been a sort of organic process of working out what has worked best we always have a an in-camera sort of board discussion at the start of every uh board meeting which has been really helpful so it's it's a board that doesn't meet that often it's sort of once every two months and mm-hmm. quite a lot may have happened between board meetings uh so it gives me an opportunity to sort of update directors if if i haven't spoken to them um about particular issues between meetings but also just to get to get a gauge of how directors are feeling about what's on the agenda you know what the content of the papers and uh it gives me an opportunity to sort of guide the meeting appropriately so uh if i get a sense that there is a particular issue and i i generally will have this sense before i have this conversation but if i get a sense that there is a particular discussion where we need to spend more time uh you know then i can guide the meeting in that way um and so we then also have so i give a chair's update and the commissioner who's the ceo equivalent um gives a commissioner update and that's an opportunity for particularly the commissioner to speak in a sort of less transactional way a much more strategic way about sort of what's really on her mind and uh it just makes sure that we can direct the conversation to cover those sorts of areas because you know we also have the rotating agenda items which ensure that we cover off all the board business that we we need to do from a governance oversight perspective annually but we don't want to be so tied to that that we don't get to the real issues um which are really keeping the commissioner up at night is my view so so that's why we've sort of landed on on that approach and how how do you think is the best way to operate uh that relationship with the ceo the chair and the ceo is it you know very frequent or is it very hands off um so we speak very often and you know during the pandemic the commission has never been busier and i think that's probably the case of many organizations uh, and we have had so last year we had monthly updates for the board and it was particularly to hear about the response to the pandemic and just the health and safety and well-being of the team and you know those those are things that we weave into our normal board meetings this year but last year in particular it was quite an intense period for the commission and uh, we did need those frequent board updates and in addition I spoke to the commissioner very frequently so I I would speak to the commissioner weekly and on an exceptions basis so if if there are things that she thinks need to come to my attention or I I think there are things I need to flag with her we we will catch up and so I think you know it, it is dependent again on the nature of the organization and what are the issues that you're dealing with at that time uh you know at the moment there's a lot of human rights issues which are resonating with the community um and so uh you know we we do speak quite frequently 
Okay, I'd love to almost sort of change gears a little bit now, if you have time, and talk about the work of the Victoria Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. Um, tell the listeners about the work that they do and you do, and is it common for states and territories and countries to have equal opportunity and Human Rights Commission, I'm trying to find the counterparts everywhere so people that are listening overseas would, can then relate yes. in their countries to equivalent commissions or institutions. Yes, so in Australia um, there are other state um, organisations or commissions which are equivalent to, to us, um, not, not exactly the same mm -hmm. because just of the, because of the statutory you know, environment differs state to state. So in Victoria we have three pieces of key legislation uh, which inform the work of the Commission, the Equal Opportunity Act, the Racial and Religious Tolerance Act and the Human Rights Charter. And in different states, there are different sort of statutory uh, environments. At the federal level, we also have an Australian Human Rights Commission at the federal level. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's really the layout in Australia. I think in other countries internationally, you know, in some countries there are sort of equivalent state organisations with a federal an overarching federal structure in some countries is just the federal sort of structure, but it very much depends, I think, on, you know, the history of those countries and, um, you know, the way they've responded to various human rights issues that have come up. So it's quite contextual. But I think, you know, in Australia, um, we're quite well served uh, in that way and certainly in Victoria. I was going to say about the Victorian one, what an honour, because I don't know if it's because I live here, but this, it seems to me that it leads the way, does it? Uh, in terms of, uh, of other... the work that they do in the Human Rights Charter, was it, was it, was it um, the first charter at the state level? Human rights charter, yes, yes. It was, wasn't um, it? Yeah. Yes, that's right. But yes, no, I believe you know, that's I, right. I used to be in governance, so I remember having to adapt a lot of things once it came out. So, yes, yeah. yes. And, yeah, look, obviously we're very proud um, of the Victorian Commission and the role of human rights in this state. And, you, you know, so the, the role of the Commission is really as a regulator, mm -hmm. um, but it's also as an educator. And, you know, some of the work that we're most proud of is the sort of systemic reviews that the Commission has conducted, which have really tried to identify and tackle systemic issues, uh, barriers to equal opportunity. So uh, we've done a report and review with VicPol um, and we're working together with the Ambulance, Ambulance Victoria at the moment to sort of do work in those areas. And we're, we're particularly proud of that because I guess it's, you know, the role as regulator is very is great in terms of enforcing the law and making sure that compliance uh, is addressed uh, in terms of equal opportunity. But it's, you know, the opportunity to really impact the community um, positively extends beyond that to addressing these systemic issues and really embedding the right culture uh, in organisations and in the broader community. I'm not surprised that they chose you as a chair because you have such great um, corporate experience and board experience prior to taking on a chair role with the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. But do you also feel like you have experience dealing with equal opportunity throughout your life, that you had that lived experience that you could then, and is that needed at the board level? Uh, I think it's helpful. Yeah, so, I, so my cultural background is that I was born in Tonga, 
and um, we came to Australia when I was three. And, you know, and actually in my corporate life and in executive life, I have run, you know, sort of equality, um, diversity and inclusion programs. And uh, I think that is really helpful, both having lived experience, but also having actually experienced uh, in the corporate uh, environment uh, or in any environment, actually, you know, trying to to sort of run these programs and, and trying to, to, to work through what works practically um, in affecting change in this area. So, yeah, I think those things were certainly really helpful. And what does it mean to have that equal opportunity in the workplace, if we're talking about workplace and, and not, not in general? What yeah. do you think are the key issues for 2021 and beyond? Um, yeah, so I I think, you know, there's been a bit of a reckoning, hasn't there, um, over the pandemic and we've had the Me Too movement in Australia, you know, we've had Brittany Higgins, Grace Tame sort of led development, further development of, of that movement with a particularly Australian context. Um, we've also had the Black Lives Matters movement. You know, there has, it has felt like a tipping point in various human rights areas has been struck, uh, and I think sort of largely in response actually to um, this global pandemic and this removal of a psychological safety net for, you know, all of us and this realisation that perhaps there are parts of our world and our culture which which could be better. So, you know, I think it's, you know, these issues absolutely impact us in Victoria as they have globally. What what has the pandemic, what sort of layers have the pandemic added to the workload of the commission? I'm very curious to know what has been the biggest impact on equal opportunity and human rights as we go into lockdown and, and quarantining and all of that. It'll be interesting to see what people are sort of feeling and how that's translating into work for you. Uh, yes, yeah, so we did have an increase, unfortunately, in complaints uh, based on racial discrimination or, you know, and particularly early in the early days um, of the pandemic, there was real anti-Asian sentiment um, expressed in the community, which was really unfortunate and, you know, had a, had a really terrible impact on those communities. Uh, so we have had I suppose, a bit of a change in profile of complaints um, and an increase in complaints in particular areas which have responded to developments directly from the pandemic. Uh, More recently, you know, masks and vaccine mandates have become issues for the community and so those are things that the Commission uh, is, is spending time focusing on as well. And I suppose just more generally, you know, there's the fatigue there's the uncertainty there's the mental health impacts of of just this very um sort of extended period of dealing with lockdowns and the pandemic public health response and you know the commission supporting multicultural communities you know trying to ensure that we can support the victorian government in terms of um, resourcing resources which are uh you know inappropriate sort of languages and and working together with multicultural communities to to really make sure that the messaging around public health response is is appropriately framed. I'm very interested in the actual work of the commission in terms of it macro level and micro level. So if anyone is experiencing inequity or has been harassed or there's an issue in the workplace, they can come to the commission and lodge a complaint. Is that correct? They can. So the way the Equal Opportunity Act works is there are a, a list of protected attributes and they cover things like 
you know, religion, uh, sexuality, uh, you know, age, disability. So um, there are a list of uh, protected attributes and particularly in the areas of employment and provision of goods and services, you know, they offer an avenue for people uh, who, if they have a complaint um, or a dispute, can bring that matter to the What commission. happens next, Moana, once the complaint is made? Uh, yes, yeah, so now now I um, won't be at all as well qualified to speak to this as um, yeah. our very talented commission team, but they bring the matter to the commission and they, you know, they, they will have a, a member of our dispute resolution team right. uh, look at the complaint and, and then facilitate a conversation. And, you know, if the grounds are there under the Act, they might facilitate, you know, a mediation yeah. uh, with the, the other side and really sort of conduct a facilitated process uh, to try and reach a resolution. And then on the other hand, the Commission also has this macro sort of influence on policy and with its recommendations and reports, right? So it's working at the macro level. What are the key issues now in terms uh, of equal opportunity and human rights in the world? I mean, if you had to, you know, choose a few... <laughs> What would you say are the most important issues for us to think about and solve? Yeah, well, there's so many, Renata. No, um, and yeah. Are there any lower hanging fruits that we can have so many. There's so many. Look, um, and, you know, and it's not just within the purview of the commission. Of course, we've got yeah. some great other commissioners, um, even in the Victorian context uh, and other organisations that um, are also at the forefront of this work. But... Um, you know, certainly gender inequality. And I guess I'm thinking of the impacts of the pandemic and, you know, where they have been particularly felt. So certainly gender inequality um, is still on the high on the list. Our racial uh, inequality is high on the list. Our First Nations communities and our response, you know, our public health response um, in that area, that's, that's very much top of mind. Disability still very much at the top of the list. And, you know, I know certainly in prior years, the area of disability is where we've had the most complaints in terms of community impacts of discrimination and, you know, religion, um, faith, you know, faith issues. I think that's, that's also been something that has been surfaced through the, the pandemic uh, response. Uh, so, look, yeah, I, I haven't really narrowed the list at all. And, and age-based um, discrimination, um, you know. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that. Because, you know, this podcast is listened to by a lot of executives that are aging, getting wiser, <laughs> and they, they do feel that in the uh, recruitment and selection process. Yes. They, they do worry about the, the ages. And- yes, and, you know, and I think there was a report recently, wasn't there, which was speaking to sort of attitudes, and I think it was particularly in the sort of corporate space, but, um, you know, reflecting this attitude that, uh, you know, having a different response to people at the, you know, who are, who are ageing, as you've said, in the employment context is actually largely, you know, still prevalent, unfortunately. Um, mm-hmm. So, so you know, I, I will say, um, Renata, I, I heard your interview with Carly and Alessandro. Yes. Which was fantastic. Wonderful. Just I got a lot out of it and um, really enjoyed that conversation. And, you know, you were talking about the sort of barriers to their gender uh, inequality, but I think it applies, it can apply um, more broadly than this. But, you know, these behavioural barriers, this sort of deep and, you know, the sort of cultural conditioning and behavioural barriers, you know, they, these are the things that 
in my experience, are very hard to identify and very hard to, you know, fix as a result. Yeah. And I think it's it's really, you know, one of the key reasons why there's no silver bullet to, to really, you know, addressing any of these um, factors in the workplace because all of us are the product mm-hmm. of that conditioning and we may be very unconscious that it's playing out in our decision-making. And so, you know, I, I think age... Uh, yeah. dis- discrimination um, is largely hidden and you know I-, I think that's one of the areas where this sort of deep ingrained um, bias and behavioral bias can really impact unfortunately. I'd love you to listen to an episode I did with the CEO of PitchMe which is a recruitment and selection platform I believe uh, UK based but working globally and she does not have any photos or videos or age or dates anywhere. And that's really to remove all of those proxies that may lead people to make decisions based on their biases. And I, I asked her, you know, do you think you're going to move into video? And she said, no, possibly not. <laughs> well, I love the sound of that. Yeah. I was very surprised because so many people are moving into this sort of software video interviewing formats and, you know, doing analysis with AI of people's body, the, sort of the body language and trying to read those and identify them. It's so, so scary for some of my clients who don't smile that much <laughs> and it doesn't mean that they're bad people you know yeah yeah um if you're interested in that sort of um thing listeners i will link below um, a recent book from malcolm gladwell on this issue of people make, make passing judgment on others because of the way that they speak or say things and malcolm gladwell himself if you see him on video <laughs> he's very plain <laughs> and and you know he doesn't have a lot of expressions and he was interested from a personal perspective on the issue and then he wrote a book about it it's fascinating mm. anyway. i'd be really interested and you know that there is all that body of evidence now that ai is itself because of course it's written by humans is itself implicitly biased so uh you know the way in which we're using ai is you know there's lots of there's a body of evidence to support that now so yeah i'd be really interested in hearing that Yes. So the sort of, you know, work that I do, Moana, is really interesting because I don't like the structure that we have, but I have to teach people how to succeed with the rules of the game that are happening right now. So I often tell them, remember to use your hands. (laughs) Julia Gillard, (laughs) do that training because especially now so many of us are in lockdown and doing videos, uh, video interviews. It's really fascinating to see very experienced executives not showcase executive presence on video because it's not the format that they're used to. They're used mm. to boardroom meetings, mm. you know, and, and um, face-to-face meetings. So it's it's that transition is is hard on some people. That doesn't mean that they are not going to perform at the job. Yes. Right. So it's it's yes. um, but it means that they need to get used to that tool because it will be the leadership tool of the future they will probably be leading from a distance and they will get need to get used and need to get better on video yes something to do um before we go i'd love to oh it's such a, a difficult topic but we've spoken about this before and you know you have both this amazing corporate career where you may have experienced or felt this and now you're at this chair level uh where you are 
you know, receiving all of this complaints and I'm wondering if it's coming to you. I'm, I'm a coach that deals with people in, in between jobs, you know, they're in transition, right? And of course, there's that grieving phase where they really are so saddened about the fact that they left the jobs. I mean, some of them, not all, but many of my clients have been made redundant or left the jobs in circumstances that were beyond their control, only to then a few weeks later realize that they hated it. (laughs) And they were, was was that bullying, Renata? You know, was I, what was that? And looking back, you know, and replaying, this week we had a session, it was, I do group coaching, and, and we discussed this idea that we replay in our minds things that have happened in the past. Mm. And we start to understand mm. that that was not okay. Mm. And it could be that, that what we did was not okay, but most times it's, wow, that, what that, that, the way that that happened to me, that was not okay. Mm. Have you had that personal experience as well of thinking, gosh, well, how did I cope with this for so long and didn't realize it wasn't okay? And what yeah. do you do about that, you know, once you do realize that, something was deeply wrong yes um it has happened to me um and i think it's probably a very rare executive who would say it's never happened to them so it has happened to me i i realized as it was happening fortunately for me and but i did something that i just would naturally always do um and then since then i've done more reading and and sort of had more life experience and have realized that it actually is a very effective strategy and that was i reached out to other Um, executives. And, you know, I had very strong connections and relationships with other executives. And, you know, I asked them, were they experiencing the same thing or was it just me? And because when this sort of behavior happens, what can happen as as sort of one of the first uh, responses is that you feel very isolated Mm -hmm. and you feel that it's potentially something to do with your performance. And so, you know, for me, I mean, this was just a very natural response. It's something I'd always do, but it was very helpful. Um, and what I immediately heard and understood is it was not just me. You know, there were a number of other executives experiencing the same mm-hmm. sort of behaviour and um, the same responses. And, you know, in that sort of, I suppose, alliance, I mean, firstly, it just made me feel it normalised the experience for me. Um, and it made me feel that it wasn't just my performance and it actually wasn't my performance. Um, uh, you know, it was things beyond that. But uh, it also gave us all a bit of a platform to sort of collectively uh, sort of change the dynamic and improve the dynamic for for ourselves. Uh, so, yeah, that, that um, is probably the, the clear example I have in my mind when you ask me, have I experienced behaviour like that? And so in terms of being able to reflect on it, and, you know, how I would behave if it ever happened again, you know, I probably would do something similar and I, I would probably give advice to other executives to do something similar. And I think also, you know, that curiosity piece again, I think reading widely and, and actually trying to understand what is happening, you know, trying to sort of intellectually, um, I, I'm someone that, you know, that appeals to trying to, to actually um, sort of understand in your rational mind and not just your emotional, um, at an re- emotional response level, you know, what, what is happening and, and um, can I identify this behaviour and is it that sort of corporate, uh, you know, uh, misbehaviour, you know, that, that I've heard of um, yeah. previously? Is it at that level? Uh, I think those things are helpful. 
It's funny you mentioned that because I love books like that and I often recommend The No Asshole Rule, which has been rewritten several times and it's getting better and better. And there's another one called Working with Monsters from an academic <laughs> from Sydney. Oh, I haven't heard of that. <laughs> and at the time, this is a long time ago, and I, my manager was a total monster and I was talking about this book to some colleagues at the kitchen in the kitchen because I was a research officer so it was part of my research to read about this I was told to read it and she definitely thought I was talking about her <laughs> she called me in the office like I really don't like the way that you I'm like no 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 it was not that <laughs> this was the research that we're doing <laughs> for southern health by the way um, and it was really funny but yeah so there are great books out there and this this um, working with monsters is really well researched and mm. an excellent Australian book so if you're interested I'll put a link below anyone who's listening and wants to read it Moana, do you think now your career will be a portfolio one and you're going to get more boards and entering roles? Is that what you see happening for you? Uh, look, I'm open, Renata. I, I'm open to an executive, you know, another full-time executive role and to potentially sort of moving into the sort of for-profit uh, listed company space for directorships at the same time um, or, uh, you know, moving to more of a portfolio mix. But, you know, I have clear in my mind the sorts of organisations I'm, you know, that play to my strengths and where I feel, you know, I can add most value. And so I've got that sort of guiding guiding light in mind and and I'll see, you know, what's what's out in the market. But um, it feels like it's quite buoyant in it the market now. and there's some interesting opportunities. So I'm trying to keep an open mind. Excellent. I wish you all the best. I'm here for you if you need any help. Thank you. <laughs> Don't uh, forget to give me a call. I'd love to support you. Uh, oh, I'd love to. When you're Thank doing you. that due diligence and you're asking people what they think, you know, that's a yes. good time to give me a call. Oh, I'd love to. And look, I did, I wanted to say at some point in this conversation, and I haven't said it, I've just realised that um, one of the game changers for me as an executive and I think, you know, one of the most impactful uh, learnings for me has been to understand that I'm really managing my energy, yeah. not my time. And, you know, if you think about things in that framework, it really does change things. And, you know, it, it comes back to this this question we've been exploring about how do you balance an, a non-executive and an executive career because, you know, let's face it, sometimes it's pretty big burden uh, you've got yeah. um you, you're managing there and, and things sort of are requiring you to dial it up in the non-executive space at the same time as uh, you're being asked to dial things up in the executive space and that can that can be you know quite a lot to take on yeah. but um but I think if you if you're thinking about your you know your life and your career in terms of managing your energy and um, what you've taken on in the non-executive space whilst you're still an executive gives you energy, then, you know, that's that's a very different way to think about things and to think about taking on opportunities that come your way. Um, oh, I and, love that. I, yeah. I love that you're mentioning it. A few weeks back there, yeah, I will link below as well, there's an episode about it, you know, what most successful people have in common. It's that very good understanding of time. It's all about time and 
having the time for the right things or the right things to you, what it means to you to be successful, what it means to you to invest time into something. Yeah. And that's so important. And I, I think you're a very good time manager. You know, <laughs> just having had those amazing breaks, going to Paris, coming back, having time out um, to go traveling with your son. I mean, a lot of people go through their careers as if they were running a marathon nonstop. Yes, and, and, and I think it's um, well. I think so, and I think it's you know understanding your non-negotiables, mm. and I think it's also actually valuing your own emotional and physical health. Um, because if you, unless you have that, you know, it's very difficult yeah. to lead other people to make sure that they can achieve their potential and also maximize their own um, mm. energy. So you know, I think. And, you know, I certainly have not always had that. That is something I've had to learn over my career. And I've, um, I've certainly sort of overcommitted on the time front and not understood how best to manage my energy. That's something that's come later in my career. But um, it has been a game changer for me. So I wanted to mention it because I think it just gives you a different, a lot of the time you might look at what you've got in your plate and you might think, I'm going to take out those things because it's taking up too much time. But if you think about what actually gives you energy, Yes. Um, you know, it might be those things that you're looking at chopping out, like oh, exercise, like catching up with your family and your friends, you know, yeah. those sorts of things which are actually essential to your well-being, yeah. not the things to chop out. <laughs> um, so, things. yeah. I want to thank you so much once again, wishing you all the best. And thank you, Renata. And we can eventually catch up in person. That would be yes, lovely. <laughs> that would be really lovely. Yes, absolutely. All right. I'll let you know when the episode is out it will be in a couple of weeks okay great i'm, I'm taking two weeks to oh off. excellent yeah. are you going to do anything or? of course not just to no. stay home <laughs> i'm just yeah. thinking you know uh, my son just told me i need to watch ted lasso oh yes i've heard that too yeah same me. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I find it fascinating and I have a couple of other interviews coming up with um, people with portfolio careers, such as people that have advisory roles, entering executive appointments and board appointments. So if you're interested, don't forget to subscribe and keep following. Bye for now.